Well, good morning, church. As uh, Pastor Albert just expressed, you know, we are grateful for all of you as church family, uh, especially those of you who are worshiping with us at home. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for those who are worshiping in the courtyard. You'll hear a little bit of a you'll hear a little bit of a 20 second delay in the courtyard because you're on a, a, a stronger platform. OK, and in terms of YouTube. Uh, but those of you, hopefully you can pick up the sound back on the third uh, level. Uh, if not, uh, you know, you should be able to get real time in Zoom. Uh, if not, then, you know, if you go over to YouTube on your LTE, you should have no problem. Uh, I want to say thank you to the deacons for supporting us. Uh, but it's not just the deacons, all the officers, all the small group leaders, this entire church. Uh, our pastoral staff is really a joy to work with across the board. Cantonese, Mandarin pastors, English pastors, uh, senior pastor. It is completely a united team. And I want to thank them for the opportunity to allow me to speak uh, and make a little special segue today. What I'm going to share with you today, the English pastoral team has helped me and assisted me to think through some of it. Uh, and uh, Pastor Albert has always been, always been so supportive uh, in the corner of all the lead pastors uh, in terms of how we want to address our congregations. And I want to thank him uh, for that type of partnership that we can share. As I stand here before you in love, we have to realize, as we all know, I don't think any of us would deny that we are in a very polarized political election year, a year like none other, or at least one that we haven't seen for a long time. And we've seen Christians swayed to the left and the right, and many Christians are stuck somewhere in between. But here's where I want to encourage you. Reality is, no matter who sits in the Oval Office, it's no November, but technically it's January, whoever wins the election, regardless of who wins, we need to look back to Christ who sits on his throne, because regardless of the results, there's going to be continued polarization. And evangelicalism is going to continue to face this type of polarization as well. And what I want to do is not so much to impact how you're going to vote. Honestly, I think most of you have already mailed in your ballots. If not, you've already decided. Okay, maybe if you're stuck a little bit, I can guide you a little bit. But that's not my intention. My intention is to give you a vision for a post presidential election church, a church that no matter who wins will have to unite around the gospel and present a counterculture. Because once again, the world around us will continue to be divided, maybe even more anger after the decision is made. Either way, this is a vision that is not really for us. It is a vision to engage, evangelize, and equip the emerging generation of Christians who will struggle in a post-Christian post world. The other thing is in the spirit of unity, our pastoral team has committed to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians does not, the passage does not reflect what I want to share today. But because I'm fully aligned and united with our pastoral team, I'm going to do two sermons today. And because it's Pastor's, Appreciations Month, Pastor's Appreciation Month, I'm going to ask you for more time <laughs> as a gift. The other thing is, uh, if you disagree with me and are angry, uh, because it's Pastor's Appreciation Month, uh, please send me your 
email in November <laughs> after the election. And I will gladly read it and engage with you. No, I'm just kidding. You can email me uh, afterwards, and uh, I'd love to engage you either way. Here's where we're going to start. The, the church must present a unified, gospel-centered counterculture amid an ever-polarizing world. That is the thesis of where I'm going to go before the sermon and where I'm going to go in the application and sandwich in between will be 1 Corinthians. You will see that I will do my best to tie together the exegetical points in 1 Corinthians, but the application is abstracted from the principle of unity, which is the central thrust of 1 Corinthians 1. That is what Paul in 1 Corinthians is launching to address, and that is where I'm pulling out the importance of the church to be a unified, gospel-centered counterculture amid an ever-polarizing world. Now, if you are hoping that as a result of the election, that somehow postmodernism would just fade away, and somehow we would, re we would return to the day where schools and universities would teach objective moral values, I think you've underestimated the real enemy, Satan. We cannot live in denial. We are well beyond postmodernity. But our hope is that Jesus warned us of these times to come. Jesus warned us in the last days that we will live in times, and he did so through the pen of the apostles. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul warned, he said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. With such warning given to the church, and we've seen through the history of the church, kings and rulers, governments and authorities, people and churches, we see the fallen nature of this world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we see such evil in portions and spheres of the political realm as well as creeping into the church as well as just society at large. I don't think our response is to become angry or to have an existential crisis. Yes, it's a threat maybe to a quality of life that we would desire one way or the other, but it definitely is not an ex existential crisis when we know that Christ is the reason why we exist in the first place and that he is the reason for our salvation. So the first point in the introduction is that the church must unite around the very issues that the right and left are using to divide us. If you are sitting here today and you feel that your biblical convictions land you strongly with the right, with the right in terms of the political sphere, and that is how you're going to vote, I'm not here to convince you. I'm certainly not here to ask you to change your voting registration, or your political party. That's not what I'm asking you to do. In fact, you know me. I am ordained and bound to the Southern Baptist faith and message. Not only am I ordained and bound and need to keep my word to our bylaws, which reflects the Southern Baptist faith and message, but as an ordained minister who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, I affirm that the sanctity of life 
and holy sexuality is non-negotiable and I need to keep my integrity when I go to the ballot. So I'm certainly not asking you to change your position. What I'm asking you to do is to outside of the of the voting situation to journey with me to the center. Once again, it's not the principles or the issues. It is the tone. It is humility. It is the reasonable, rational ability to recognize the problems and to equally care about the non-negotiables on the other end, which I will go over right, a little bit. And it is more not for us. It is for our grandchildren. It is for our children. We will be long gone, and we will have our children and grandchildren living in a nation that will be very much post-Christian, even after these next four years or eight years. And if we are going to engage, evangelize, and equip them, we need to change our tone, we need to come to the middle, and we need to walk with them. We need to understand the education that they're going to receive regardless. Even if these next four years you have a conservative Senate and Congress and even a Supreme Court that's conservative, majority-wise, we're talking about a vision for the future of FCBC Walnut. And we're talking about being a vibrant church for generations to come. If you are more progressive this morning, I want you just to come to the middle and hear a different tone. Hear a tone of humility, hopefully. Hear a tone of someone who doesn't know all the issues to its dime because it's so nuanced and complex. But to just understand why, for so many Christians, for centuries, why the sanctity of life and human sexuality are non-negotiable. At the same time, I want to acknowledge that the right hasn't always given the same attention to the non-negotiables that we see throughout scripture of care for the poor and the biblical definition of justice, which I will define for you in a way where I think all of us would agree based on scripture what justice is. And I think we need to do better as a church. And if you're confused and you're stuck in the middle, then I hope this morning I present you a third way not a right church, not a left church, a center church that serves as a counterculture, not bowing down to the political powers that have tried to divide us to the left or to the right, but bowing down to Christ who sits on his throne. And so we're going to begin with the next point of God's purpose for government. God's purpose for government, very quickly, is drawn off of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, and a secondary reference to Romans 13, 1 to 7. Government's purpose is very clear in Scripture. It is to uphold justice and maintain civil order. And God never promised that the government would be Christian or Judeo-Christian. In fact, when Paul wrote and when Peter wrote, they were writing to a church that was under dictators, under a Roman empire, and under a Greco-Roman culture that was very much steeped in a sinful and a dishonoring lifestyle. So the government's purpose is to protect those who do good and punish those who do evil. If you understand the purpose of the government, then you understand why we pay our taxes. Jesus instructs Christians in Matthew 22 to render to Caesar what is due to Caesar, only what is due to Caesar, and to give to God what God deserves, and that is to fund the government, ideally that they would uphold the biblical definition of justice 
and to protect, once again, those who do good and punish those who do evil. That is very simple. When you look at all the policies, to the best of their sinful, fallen imperfection, what are they doing to achieve the purpose of government? Now, I know it's not clear because all the issues are nuanced and complex, and there's all kinds of special interests involved. So biblically, how do we navigate, the next point, navigating the election with a kingdom perspective? There are a few points that I want to give you to lead into 1 Corinthians. And the first is to understand that Christ is king, and we are ambassadors of his kingdom, regardless of how you are registered to vote politically, or if you're not planning to vote at all. Christ is king, and we are ambassadors of his kingdom, and that is our true party. Christ is sovereign over the fate of his church, and if you believe that Christ is sovereign, then the results of the election should not create an existential threat in your heart that leads to anger and division because we stand under God's grace, a grace that we don't deserve, a grace that actually unifies everybody regardless of your social economic background, regardless of your record of citizenship, regardless of whether you've been good or bad, regardless of your past, regardless of whether you came from Judaism, atheism, or paganism. The fact that you have been drawn to Christ, it is by his grace, you're going to see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Secondly, the church's power is supernatural and redemptive, and the government's power given by God operates off of military power and legal power, or we might say political power. Military and legal power belongs to the government, not redemption, not spirituality. Spiritual power, supernatural power, and redemptive power belongs to the church. And we're going to see that this morning, that God has given this very sinful church in 1 Corinthians evidence of their salvation that they need to live up to because he's given them spiritual gifts. And third, you shouldn't expect the government to act like the church because the sec secular government is not equipped with a guaranteed eschatology. Just to illustrate this point, these next four years, you might have some policies passed. You might have the Senate pass some policies, good ideas, maybe or bad ideas. Maybe it won't even get to the ground because they'll keep fighting about it. And the next president comes in, and the next Senate comes in, and they just reverse it, and they, uh, they repeal it or appeal it, right? And so at the end of the day, you know, even good Christian policies, how long will it last? Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed. There is not a, the, the government does not have even a clear idea of where to go or when COVID-19 will be completely over. I mean, I'm talking about globally. So at the end of the day, it is only Christians in the church that has a guaranteed eschatology. We know something is guaranteed regardless of disease, regardless of demons, regardless of death. Again, our battle is against principalities and powers of the air, Satan. But Christ will return, and his kingdom is already not yet, already imperfect, but present in the church. That is our party. And that Christ, that Savior, that King will return, and he will establish his kingdom in full. And we can be certain of that. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 1. And in that way, let me transition to the text now and just focus on it with exegetical faithfulness. Now, the title of this morning's sermon 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9 is divine grace for a divided church. Divine grace for a divided church. Next week, Pastor Albert is going to preach. And once again, the next time that I preach will be, because uh, the, the schedule has been set, will be uh, after the election, right? We'll be in November. And that's why I have to do this today. This is my last chance to shepherd you and to lead you through these tumultuous times. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 9, you're going to see that when Pastor Albert comes up next week in verses 10 to 17, that Paul is going to address division in the church. And to prepare them for this passage on division, he wants to unite them around the gospel of grace, divine grace. Grace is the proper theological construct and truth to unite God's people around. Because when you have people disagreeing with each other in the church and exercising pride, what unifies them is equalizing them at the foot of the cross. That there's something that unifies all Christians is that all genuine Christ followers are recipients of God's divine and sovereign grace made possible through his sovereign election. Salvation was not by our choice. Salvation was not by our, it was not earned. It was not merited. It is all by the sovereign grace of God and it works itself out in the effective calling and then the application of that grace through forgiveness of sin and the new covenant given to us. The evidence of that grace is the Holy Spirit. How do you know you have the Spirit? Your spiritual gifts are the down payment that you will be fully sanctified. The presence of spiritual gifts in the body and the exercise of the believer is the evidence that you will be sanctified even if you are struggling with sin. That's the promise that is given to the Corinthians. And that same spirit of God through his grace will sustain us to the end. Point number one this morning is in verse four, divine grace. Let me read you verse four. Grab your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter one. Let me read you verse four. Verse four says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The grace of God was given to them. Once again, grace cannot be earned. When you receive your paycheck, hopefully you don't go to your employer or your company or your boss and say, thank you so much for showing me grace. You see, you know, when you do something wrong and someone forgives you, you that's when you say, thank you for being gracious to me. I don't deserve your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. You see, there's a difference. Grace is unmerited, cannot be earned, cannot be paid back by good works. In fact, it is the grace of God to say, God, thank you for forgiving me. I don't deserve it. Therefore, I worship you and I long to serve you. Anything that we do for God is a response to his grace. And God's grace is ultimately manifested and revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why it says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Pretty clear. Now you move to verse 5. And in verses 5 to 7, you see the example of God's grace in the spiritual gifts given. So point number one was divine grace. Point number two was divine gifts. So you see that today, there's a little bit of a DG, 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 discipleship groups. But basically, it is, it is this divine grace, divine gifts. Now, when you talk about divine gifts, great gifts there is a past and present application of God's grace. Look with me now, now first at verses 5 and 6. Let me read that to you. Verse 5 says that in every way, not just 
in a limited capacity, beloved, but in every way you were enriched. It's not something that's going to happen. You were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. This is talking about what's happened in the past. God's grace is evidence that you were enriched. The, the word enriched in the Greek means to make wealthy. It means to make rich. And we understand that this is not talking about money. I think we all agree. We understand. This is talking about the spiritual blessings, the spiritual wealth that you and I have, that we were already enriched. It's a past tense. It is an understanding of something that was already given to us in speech and all knowledge. I believe that specifically this is referring to two spiritual gifts. There's different interpretations here, and we'll go into more uh, application uh, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 12 through 14. Some believe that this is specifically talking about prophecy and the gift of tongues, and we'll get into that. I actually think that this is specifically talking about two other manifestations of supernatural gifts, which becomes more clear in verse 7. And if I show you the exact verse in a moment from, from, later, from later in 1 Corinthians, you'll see why. Exegetically, that is the soundest interpretation. Okay, so all speech and knowledge, these are probably the gifts that everybody wanted. And then in verse 6, it says, even as the testimony about Christ Jesus was confirmed among you, meaning these gifts confirmed your salvation, even though you are very sinful, Corinthians. That is the point being made. So that is divine gifts. Now, if you have your Bibles, I just want you to look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, I'm going to turn there too. Uh, you know, the wind keeps flipping my Bible back to Matthew and Mark today, and maybe God is telling me, keep preaching the gospel, and I will. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, I want you to read it very carefully. Look at verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance. That's speech. Utterance to utter something is speech. The utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So you see, wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that what people need to navigate through crisis and times of trial? It is knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge of God's word and wisdom. When and how and why should we apply God's word? What's the best way to do application? It's one thing to know God's truth that's given to us, but how do you best apply it? How do you say something? When do you say something to someone? And that's what our church needs. That's what the church universal needs. That's what evangelicalism needs. They need wisdom and knowledge to navigate and apply biblical truth to very tumultuous times. And so when you see speech, the utterance of wisdom, and the utterance of knowledge, I believe that these are the two gifts that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, when he says, In every way you were enriched in him in all speech, utterance, and knowledge. It is knowledge and wisdom. And ultimately, the wisdom is not the wisdom of this world, but it is the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Now, the spiritual gift of wisdom, I will go into more detail. Um, I will try to assign myself those charismatic passages. Okay, because I taught it to in transit. I've taught it to Unicoi. Uh, Unicoi never paid attention, probably. So you probably don't have my notes anymore. And so it's already done and ready. So I will teach that to you, too, about tongues and prophecy and healing and all of that. I'll teach it to you. Don't be scared. Okay. Uh, but basically, 
Really quickly, wisdom refers to this gift called the word of wisdom. This is a supernatural gift. It is the gift to sort through different opinions, to sort through facts. Wisdom is different from just knowing things. In order to determine what solution would be best for the individual believer or the community of believers. And understand that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Scripture was not completed yet. The New Testament was not completed. And so there was this supernatural manifestation where you would take the letters, you would take the Gospels, you would take the Old Testament, you would take the principles, of, and you would, you would have people who could think more clearly, who could be wise in their application. They wouldn't just be able to teach you the law. Right, because there's a lot of places where right or wrong is not that clear. There are issues in life where the Bible doesn't really speak to clearly. There are things that are very black and white, and there are things that are very gray. And that's where you need to apply wisdom through the power of the Spirit. And that wisdom comes from God. That is the word of wisdom. It is a word that is given to navigate through difficult times. There is a second gift, a gift of knowledge. This is the gift to learn, analyze, and uncover insights with regard to the Bible. So you see how wisdom is one thing, and the teaching is usually given with people who have knowledge. All of these gifts are designed to build up the body. A person who has the gift of knowledge, who just studies all day and keeps it to himself or herself, is not really, that's, that, that can't be used. That does not edify the body. So, so technically, the person who is given the gift of knowledge is also typically given the gift of teaching. And the person who is given the gift of wisdom is sometimes given the gift of pastoring. Pastoral, because pastoring, you need to do counseling. Counseling is not, if you ever been to marriage counselor or family counselor, it's not really about reviewing the facts. Everybody knows the facts. The hard part is the wisdom. How do you apply the facts? And what do you do when you apply the facts, but you keep fighting, right? And so at the end of the day, you see the pastor counselor and many of you who counsel small group leaders, you need wisdom. Disciple makers, you need wisdom. Pray for the gift. Knowledge, teachers, you need knowledge. But when you have knowledge and wisdom together, you can navigate through the most difficult trials for the church. And that's what 1 Corinthians needed. And then go back to our passage now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you look at verse 7. And notice that it says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Which means it wasn't, the problem with the Corinthians was not that they weren't saved. Now some of them would probably not repent and prove that they were never saved to begin with. But the majority of the Corinthian Christians, it's not that they weren't saved. Because it was not a matter of a lack of gifts. They were very gifted. But you can be very gifted and proud. And remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? And 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can have all the gifts, of, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. Beloved, let's apply that a little bit. Bible teachers can all have the biblical positions firm in this presidential election year. But if we don't have love, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything, right? Wisdom. We can tell people this is the wisest way to move one way or the other. But if we don't have love, it's meaningless. And so that's a little bit of an abstract application of gifts that are used. And gifts must be applied through love. All gifts. 
all the gifts that are not addressed until later, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So this hope that Paul is given to this struggling church is the hope that we need, a hope that is a necessary emotion in the midst of crisis. You see, when you are in crisis, you need Christ. When you are in crisis and you feel this existential threat, like whatever's happening in society is, is threatening your existence, what you need to remember is Christ is. Remember that. Christ is not means you're living as if he's not Lord and he doesn't exist. Christ can only exist as Lord. He cannot exist as any other being or any other essence because that's not him. So he's either Lord or not. There's no in-between. And so just remember that. Whenever you are in crisis, you need to remember that Christ is. And Christ is Lord. He's king. He can't be anything else. That is against his identity, his existence. The definition of Jesus Christ is king and Lord and God. Even the atheists believe that. An, an intelligent atheist will look at a dictionary and say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, but the definition of Jesus Christ, by essence, is Lord and God of the Christians. That is the truth. Right? There's no other way around it. And so remember that the certainty of our future in Christ leads us through uncertainty amid crisis. The certainty that Christ is gives us certainty amid, amid this uncertain future that we are facing. And that is the emotional fortitude that you need to survive any crisis. It is a confident belief in Jesus Christ. And that transitions us to point number three. Point number three is divine guarantee. So we've seen divine grace, divine gifts, divine guarantee. And so this is talking about the future grace, the future grace of God, the guarantee of our salvation for those who believe. I want, you to re I want to read to you verses 8 to 9 if you'll look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It talks about Christ who will sustain you to the end. Notice the future tense, he will sustain you will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. What are you talking about guiltless? But I struggle with sin. Yes, but you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when he returns. Verse 9. God is faithful even when the Corinthian church is unfaithful. God is faithful even though we are unfaithful. God will bring his church together even if Christians are divided. So right now I'm seeing certain pastors being very political. Sometimes they're just really championing a certain candidate and so I think, you know what, in heaven, though, we're going to be brothers because this person loves Jesus, and we're going to hug because there won't be any COVID-19, and we're going to love each other. And then I might see a pastor who has gone all the way to the left, yet he's saying that he's still pro-life. But he's all the way over to the left. And I might think, huh, my heart won't let me go there. But you know what, when, but he believes in Jesus. So when I get to heaven... We are going to be hugging each other, celebrating how the Lord, by His grace, used us as imperfect, sinful people to try our best to navigate through very divided times. I just want you to be sensitive. Just want you to be humble. Just understand that a lot of people are in a very difficult situation. And not everybody has the same training. 
Not everybody has the same spiritual gifts. Sometimes you might hear a spiritual leader and say, wow, man, that's not that wise. Well, if you know anything about me and how I gave a blessing over a certain sports team, you will say, you know, our pastor is pretty foolish, right? So I'm not wise. I'm not wise. I'm foolish. My only wisdom is the cross. My only wisdom is the cross of Christ. So sometimes I think we just need to be gracious to each other. And we need to be gracious to other Christians who disagree because when we get to heaven, look what it says. As long as we believe in Christ, he will sustain us to the end, guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. But even when we are imperfect and we might be unfaithful in every single thing to whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, when you go to the, 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 the voting, I mean, it's absentee, right? You're voting in the mail. And let's just say you really don't understand a proposition. There's too much legalese. You're reading both ends. And so you mark something. And then you realize later, man, I, I, I voted wrong. I meant to say yes, and I voted no. You know, Jesus is not going to stop you at the gates of heaven and say, you know what, you're going you're gonna to be judged for that. <laughs> right? He's going to look at your attitude. He's going to look at your attitude. He's going to look at, did you try your best? And in your imperfect knowledge and wisdom, did you love? Did you love others? That's what he says. That's the command. The command is to love God and to love neighbor. The command is to love Jesus and to love one another. So if you get something wrong, or you realize 10 years later that your position changed and you should have voted a certain way, I don't think Jesus is going to hold your conscience to that. But I hear Christians speaking today, binding people's consciences as if they're going to go to hell just because they don't know what to do. And I think that's wrong. I think we need to help each other. We need to listen to those who are wiser, much wiser than me. We need to listen to those who have knowledge. And then we need to pray for the spirits to guide us. And then we need to listen to the things that are actually binding commands. Love God, love neighbor, love Christ, love one another. Those are commands. Jesus, Jesus is replete over and over again, love one another. And notice what our hope is. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of Christ. This is what sometimes we forget. Koinonia means we are one. We are fellowship. We're part of the family with Christ. All of us brothers and sisters in Christ are now in fellowship with, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? And it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want to lead you to the big idea. The big idea is Christ gives us the grace of salvation, the gifts of the Spirit, and the guarantee to sustain our faith. Once again, Christ gives us, Christ gives us the grace of salvation, the gifts of the Spirit, and the guarantee to sustain our faith. Now I want to spend the next, hopefully it won't be long, 20 minutes or so, and please again, I thank you for your time that four, uh, I want to lead us through four issues that Christians ought to unite around because they reflect the heart of God in all of Scripture. But these are the, exa the exact four issues that the left and right, the religious left and right, have divided Christians over for a very long time. And somehow they've succeeded. But I think for our children and our grandchildren, I don't think they will succeed. We need to have a third way. And I believe this third way is evidence in what we see in the early church. 
and how they lived under a Roman Empire, but yet they were able to say caring for the poor matters just as much to God as the sanctity of life. And actually, some of that is connected. Opening illustration, just to let you know that I'm not completely out of my mind, is that when the church says, keep your child to a non-Christian or even to a Christian, will the church also say, we have a fund that will help you. We will counsel you. We will guide you. We'll provide for you. Because we know that you might be poor. And if you come from a non-Christian family and they disown you, because they're ashamed of you, the church will embrace you. And one of our families will take you in and help you raise that child. They're connected. They are connected. Right? So God cares. God cares. And I think we need to be equally passionate about all the things God cares about. And that's why I will not allow any political party to divide our church. We will be a church that's very different. We vote one way because that's just how our nation works. Right? We're registered to a party. Or you could vote third or or, you know, just write in, but that's not going to really make a lasting impact. That's more conscience votes. But at the end of the day, as a church, how do we conduct ourselves? So four things. It's on your outline. It's also going to be on your, I will guide you through on the text overlay. Thank you, AV team. I will prompt you through. Four things. I'll give you all four up front, and then one each time. Okay, number one, care for the poor. Number two, justice defined, not social justice which has turned political, but justice defined as peacemaking, civility, dignity, fairness. And when you apply this rightly, it includes the reconciliation of race, Jews and Gentiles. It includes proper and right administration of caring uh, for the economic issues in society, right? It would include all of that and a just government free of corruption. It would include all that, holding people accountable on both ends. It would include all of that. Right? Rewarding those who do good and work hard. And caring for and helping those who are truly helpless and hopeless in society. It would be caring for not just unborn, but elderly. Right? Who can't care for themselves. This is complete justice, peacemaking, civility, dignity, fairness. It's what the Bible talks about, not what's on your voting, uh, on, your, your, uh, on the party platforms. Number three, sanctity of life. Number four, holy sexuality. Religious freedom is to be stewarded and appreciated, but it is not promised in Scripture. Right? So we appreciate it. We fight for it because we can steward it for the gospel, but it is not something that's promised in Scripture. Okay? But free speech is also not something that's promised in Scripture, but we need it if God gives it to us. But these four things, from the Old Testament to the New, care for the poor, justice, sanctity of life, holy sexuality, are from Genesis to Revelation. Let me give you a real quick illustration of how you need to think about this, and I said this at our Wednesday night prayer meeting. You need to think about this as a parent. Even if you're not a parent, I just want you to think of a parent. Imagine that you have two children who are fighting. And here's what they're saying to each other. He's lying. No, he's lying. No, he hit me first. No, he won't do this. No, he won't do that. Right? You can give them names if you want, whatever you want to name them, but that's what we see. Now, as the parent, you must be invested. You must be in their lives, but not of them. You can't be of either of them. You can't just jump to one side and start slugging away. Right? What are you doing? As the parent, you have a higher vision. 
you have a higher purpose that you want them both to see where they're wrong. You want one to see that even if one started it, it's wrong that you retaliated by swinging your fist, correct? You want, what are you trying to do? You're trying to do what government's supposed to do. You're trying to find out the truth and apply the truth. You're trying to uphold what's justice in your home. You're trying to uphold what is righteous. And you want to teach both children what is righteous before God. Because you see the higher picture. That's what it looks like to think as an ambassador of Christ and not of either political party. You can't be of either. You can be registered one, but you cannot be of either because you have to have a higher vision. You're the parents. And this illustration is from a conversation that I was uh, able to listen to uh, from Jonathan Lehman, author and Christian writer. Jonathan Lehman, who's done a lot of good work. Someone disagrees. So point number one. Point number one is care for the poor. I just want you to see how, if you were a parent, how to see it. Okay, again, these are very complex issues. When you're a parent, you hear the left traditionally. When you listen to the debates today, you don't even get to the issues. I don't even know if Congress can agree on the issues to get to actually do any policy making. What you see on the left traditionally when they were actually talking was tax higher income brackets to create programs and policies to care for the poor, right? So if you want to listen past the fighting and you're the parent, that's what you're hoping that they would be saying. And what you've traditionally heard from the right is lower taxes for corporations and businesses and we're going to deal with this problem of the poor by creating more jobs. And less tax means more in the pocket and we hope the people would have a good, be good hearted to be generous, right? That's, as a parent, that's what you hear if you want to really listen. You have to see that, just not just people yelling at each other. But as the parent, you come from the party called the church. And the church says, give freely and cheerfully to care for the poor among us and around us. So you want to understand two things, or several things, but you want to understand, number one, what and who does the Bible consider to be the poor? How did Israel deal with the poor? God in the Old Testament called Israel to care for the poor among them as a model for other nations. To care for other people who were committed to the covenant people of God. That's who they were to be cared for. They were to care for the sick. They were to care for the lepers. They were to put them, it's, it's sad that they quarantined them, but they were to care for them nonetheless, right? They were to care for those who were helpless, orphans and widows. You see this replete. Then you go to the book of James. You see the application through the gospel, generosity, caring for the poor among them. And then in the New Testament church, you see that they were caring for the disabled in their communities as well. Now, the poor in the Bible does not refer to those who, are, those who refuse to work or those who squander their wealth. You see this very clearly, right? And so we're talking about who are the hopeless, the helpless, and truly the broken in society. And if taxes are cut, and if that money ends up in our pocket, and if our pastors call us to give, to care, to give more, to have compassion for the broken in our church, and to those in our community, would you give that's how you go to the ballots and decide. And if you're not willing to, are you able to trust the government to do it instead because you've delegated that stewardship? 
So I just want you to think clearly as the parents, right? And I want you to see the example, not of communism, but of community. Acts chapter 22, verse 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their position, their, their positions. <laughs> they were selling their possessions and belongings. Possessions and belongings. Private ownership of property. So Hanley, how do you get your political applications by reading the Bible? Look at it. It says very clearly they were selling. So market. They were selling. They had the right to sell. They did not need to sell it. They were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were, because of the gospel, distributing the proceeds to any who had need in the early church. They did not wait for the government to set up a program. They did not tell the government, if you lower our taxes, we will do it. What they did was render to Caesar whatever Caesar demanded, even when it was unfair, and that's not going to stop us from being a gospel-centered counterculture that the world would not buy into but would win the world you see this is the type of witness that the emerging generation of young adults millennials gen z and beyond need to hear and see they need to see this type of church a church that puts aside partisan politics regardless of who wins or loses and starts acting like the early church but understanding why we hold to certain political positions Number two, right? God cares deeply about justice. Justice, the definition has been perverted both to the right and the left. I want you to once again think as a parent. Justice in the Bible is peacemaking, which includes reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, civility, dignity, fairness. I want you to consider what is possible and when it became possible. In the Old Testament, Jews... It was Israel. There was always tension racially, Jews, Gentiles, and the different nations. Israel was supposed to be a, a model nation, but remember what it was said. If you're willing to be a God-fearer, if you're willing to adopt Judaism, then you're welcomed into the community, but you still worship in a certain place, right? It's not a, until you have the gospel that reconciliation is possible. So now you're prioritizing the gospel that without the gospel, the government does not have the power to produce that type of reconciliation that we want to see. That is the truth. That it's not until the gospel is made available that you see replete in Paul's letters, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles reconcile with each other. Right? So you see that. Very clear. Okay? But here's, as a parent, what you see from the left. Blame. It's the rhetoric. It's the structure. I'm not saying that, that has not, that's not true. I'm just saying that you don't see solutions. You see blame. So if your kid is just blaming the other kid of yours, what would you say? On the right, you see no clear solutions. You see blame. It's it's BLM, Antifa, CRT. Their rhetoric is making it worse. You see what, what's happening is you see two kids blaming each other, blaming the extremes. I'm not saying that's not what's happening. I'm just saying as the parent, you have to see that. 
And instead, what you want to, to vote for is the church. The church, God's heart has always been to reconcile the nations as evident in the Abrahamic covenant, not made possible and realized until Christ, the seed of the Abrahamic promise, comes. And in the early church, look at their posture. They were willing to be persecuted, yet responded with forgiveness. They took to heart Matthew chapter 5 and the kingdom ethic of blessed are the peacemakers, justice. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And with the example of the cross of Christ, out of that spirit of the cross comes ensuring that within the church there's fairness. Because the government might not always be fair, that there's civil discourse, that we uphold the dignity of all people. And they look to an eternal kingdom because Jesus had already told them that he will not overtake Caesar's throne in that time or the Roman Empire. And so they had this eschatological hope that, that rooted them. So that's the second thing that God cares about all throughout Scripture, justice. And then justice is then nuanced into economy, economic measures, and all of that. And that's where you have to use wisdom to decide. But God cares about justice. And the left traditionally has hijacked these terms. The left says, if you stand with us, Christian, we will care for the poor and we will uphold justice. But as Christians, we have to say, you cannot divide us that way. You have to give us the other two that we want. Now, the other two, we have to look at the right and say, you cannot hijack holy sexuality and sanctity of life and not give us policies that care for the poor and uphold justice. And that's why we cannot put our trust in either the right or the left. We need a third way. We need a new apologetic. A lot of this work is built off of biblical scholar Larry Hurtado and then adapted more recently by Tim Keller. And so the third thing that I think is non-negotiable, that I think is a, I believe it's an anchor that holds down my conscience personally, is the issue of sanctity of all of life. So we're talking about the unborn. We're talking about after the child is born and providing care for the mother. We are talking about then the elderly as well. We're talking about human life. We're talking about rhetoric, policies, and principles that protect all human life from hate. We are talking about caring and giving health care for those who are elderly and cannot help themselves, and no one is willing to help them. From dust to dust, complete sanctity of all human life. But it begins with the ones who cannot defend themselves, and that's the unborn. I think the left is very clear pro-choice policies and justices, right? Pro-life policies and justices. The church, sanctity of all human life as a principle and practice, and caring for, for the life of the unborn, infanticide, caring for the mothers, they did this, right? What happened in the early church, you read the church history books, is that they were dead set against both abortion and infanticide, but not merely the principle. See, a lot of times we go and vote, but that's all we do. What ministries do we have in the church to counsel those who are struggling this way? Will we shame our children when they become pregnant? Or will we, will we say the church will not shame you, we'll help you raise the child and we'll provide funding if you get disowned. Right, what will the church do? 
The early church went and they found and took infants who were thrown out to die or became harvested by slave owners. And they went out and they got those children and they adopted them and raised them as their own. So it's not enough for us to be passionate about the sanctity of, of life with unborn, but what about after they're born, once we convince them of counsel? And what about counsel for people who made a mistake and to free their consciences to come to Christ and receive forgiveness and to make them feel at home because they've repented of the sin of abortion because now they want Jesus. I think the church needs to do better than simply vote and champion a political side. I think our convictions need to be strong, but we need to do better in showing how our churches are going to take this seriously and implement it. And I believe that if our church does that, we will not only win many Christians who are leaning left, but any young adult, millennial, or Gen Z who's leaning progressive, I believe that we can convince you of why the sanctity of life is non-negotiable, but why we're willing to, to go all the way through and to show you the heart of Jesus. And that's the church we need. That's the church we need for an ever-progressive, secular society. That's what we need to show them. That's what we need to show the world. Number four, holy sexuality. As a parent, you look at the left. It's policy to promote non-traditional views on gender, identity, marriage, and family. This then flows into all the stuff that you know better than I do, all the nuances of education and education freedom. The right appoint Supreme Court justices to protect traditional views on gender, identity, marriage, and family. The church must recognize what Jesus warned us of, that I don't think we're going to win this battle in the secular realm. You look at Europe, you look at this world, you remember that the church is universal. I don't know if we're going to win this one. We can take our stance, but if we get angry, if we lose our humility, then we've lost right there. I, what we need to consider is how our churches are going to better disciple and equip parents of the future generations. I think we need to understand how, given this facility, how we can open up homeschool networks once COVID is over and use our gyms, our Macs, our spaces, and our classrooms for parents who want to homeschool but don't know how and come together and help each other. I think we even need to support the parents who cannot afford to homeschool and begin to turn Sunday school classes into biblical worldview and actually talk about all the issues and equip parents to go through those textbooks and to teach them and not blame them as second-class citizens because they have to put their kids in public school. I think as a pastor, I recognize that you worked so hard to move into Walnut and Diamond Bar for the schools, and I'm not going to tell you to abandon your entire plan. But how can we begin to equip? See, we don't depend on the government to win this for us. That's why I'm not angry. I don't get upset. I don't, I don't get upset if we lose the Supreme Court eight years from now or if they stack it, right? I mean, that's just how the world is. But I don't want the younger emerging generation to see us as a bunch of angry people who are more political than we are biblical. We need to help them understand why these are non-negotiable, right? For me, it's as simple as saying I'm ordained. I'm ordained under the Southern Baptist 
faith and message, I'm also ordained by FCBC WANA and our bylaws have very clear statements. For me to actually vote any other way would actually, you would have to remove me as your pastor. I can hide behind that, but I don't want to. I want to say I should believe in holy sexuality because God cares about it. Now, most of you don't have that ordination held over you. But if we look at scripture, I think we can understand this. Now, here's where I want to call you as a church to, to what we need to think about in the next 20 years. If we lose 5013C because we hold to our bylaws, will you still give offering if I ask you to, if you don't get any tax break? Will you still give offering so that we can fund those who would then help us teach and equip our children and grandchildren with how to understand their schooling and how to understand their education from a Christian worldview, but still fulfill the secular requirements to go into the university systems. And again, we need to prepare because the university systems aren't going to teach a, a Christ-centered worldview either. Will you still give offering if the 5013C is removed? Will you still pay my salary if 5013C is removed? And that's where I'm not voting for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party to keep my livelihood. You know what my faith is? It's in you guys. I trust you. I trust you that the pastoral staff will not starve if we use 5013C because of the gospel in your heart and because of how you have loved me and loved our pastors so well. And if the younger generation sees a church that's like that, we will win them and we will win their non-Christian friends. This is a new apologetic, one who seeks to live as a vibrant church, understanding that we are going to be in a post-Christian -post world. Now we need to go and vote according to our conscience. And this is the church as a gospel-centered counterculture. A gospel-centered counterculture that looks at all four major issues that are near and dear to the heart of God and prepares for the future. But what some of us need to do right away is we need to first go home and reconcile with our loved ones for becoming so angry. And then we need to look at this vision and saying, will we hold hands as a family, as a church, and say, whatever happens come November, we are going to be together for the gospel. Because we have a God who has given us a vision for the future. And if you can see that I'm not lying to you, the reason why I would vote a certain way is because I believe in the church. And I believe in the gospel. And I see that in two very sinful political platforms, there seems to be one that remains sinful but has... I don't know why, but they're allowing and fighting for the church to be the church, and they're fighting for the gospel to be able to be proclaimed. And I will acknowledge all the sin and all the imperfections, and I'm not asking you to stand with me on that political platform. I am asking you to be the church. And so if you ask me personally why I have certain convictions, it's because I believe in the church, and I believe that we are going to be the strongest when the church is the church. And when the gospel is freely proclaimed because the gospel is the hope for society. But you can see that the tone and the rhetoric is very different from this political right that you often hear from the religious right. It is pleading with you 
and begging with you to prioritize the church and the gospel for as long as we can. And even after we lose in the secular realm to believe in the people of God, because the testimony of the salvation is already evident in all of you. And that's how we're going to be united. Beloved, will you now unite and join with me in a word of prayer? And I thank you so much for giving me this extra time. I'll see you again on this pulpit and platform after the election. And I'll continue to shepherd you no matter what happens. Okay, and we'll get through this together. Let's pray. Father, we look at scripture and we see your heart. We see the heart of God. And you've given us clarity in terms of the things that are near and dear to your heart. And we see how the world has tried to divide the church down party lines. Father, we as a church will no longer allow political platforms to divide us, even though we might be convicted to go one way or the other. Father, we love you and your people love you and, we, and your people love each other. But sometimes, Lord, we're swayed by what we are sent, forwarded or emailed or what we see on the media. Father, we pray that we would come before you and first give us the power to reconcile our relationships. And then, Lord, give us the fortitude and the vision and the strength to go forward as a church. Help us to be a vibrant church, to use all of our resources, our gifts, and our facilities to be a church that can survive any form of government because you are king. You and your kingdom will come. And Lord, I have full confidence not in any government party, but in our people, in the members of First Chinese Baptist Church of Walnut, and in all of our family and friends of other churches that are gospel-centered and are striving to propel forward a third way, a new apologetic of a gospel-centered counterculture that is aimed to engage an emerging generation that will grow up in a post-post-Christian America. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will give us a vision that goes beyond the next four years or even eight years. That you will give us a vision that will sustain gospel disciple-making for as long as it takes until you come and bring us home. Lord Jesus, as a parent, I confess to you my concerns and my worry. And I surrender those concerns to you. And I want to pray on behalf and with all of the parents and all here, that we too surrender our concerns and our worries to you. Will you be Lord over our hearts this morning? And if anyone is listening to you this morning or watching or here who does not know you, Lord, as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would save them and be king over their hearts so that they would not have a crisis anytime in the next few months emotionally because they will remember that Christ is. He is Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.